But he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of the Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplace and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Chapter 21. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in only two small copper coins. And he said, Truly I say to you, the poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of poverty, put in all she had to live on. And some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings. He said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will be not thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? We're in Luke chapter 20. We're going to finish up that chapter and start in 21 today. Let me pray for us. Father, uh, we thank you for your word and we cherish it. We pray that you would speak to us through it today. Not just to accumulate information and facts and to read this as a piece of literature, but that it changes us, that it changes our minds, that it changes our hearts, that we are more in tune with you. In Jesus' name, amen. It's clear from reading the uh, Gospel of Luke that we've been studying for the past few years that Jesus taught with authority, and that authority was from God to do His will. And in Luke's Gospel alone, Jesus' authority is mentioned 13 times, and it's mentioned 9 times before we get to Luke chapter 20, verse 2. And Luke chapter 20, verse 2 is where the leaders said to Jesus, tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. And so... As Jesus' influence continued to grow and his impact continued to grow, the religious leaders around the time just got more angry and they got more antagonistic towards him. And the closer Jesus got to fulfilling his mission, the more hostile these religious leaders got. Luke chapter 19, verses 47 through 48, sums up what was going on here. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. A really helpful process for us to exercise and to practice is what I do often in structurally outlining the passage, doing a structural outline. Now, we don't have time to do that, and we can go over a month, two-month class on just how to do structural outlining, but... We don't have time for that. Maybe in the future. But if we did a structural outline of this passage, which actually highlights and focuses on the nouns and the verbs within the passage, and we look at just verses 47 through 48 in chapter 19, let's just pick that apart a little bit. So Jesus taught, the religious leaders sought to destroy, and the people were hanging to Jesus' teaching. And have that in the back of your mind as we rethink about how Jesus was confronted with these three trick questions in Luke chapter 20. 
So these religious leaders attack Jesus, and we've been talking about this in the past several weeks, about these three trick questions that they had. And what they were trying to do was make Jesus out to be a fraud because they didn't want the people to continue following them. And so they were doing everything that they could to turn the people against Jesus, including having the Roman authorities turn against Jesus by saying, who do we pay? Do we pay Caesar or not? And so they're, they're looking at every angle to try to catch Jesus off guard. And then Luke, in chapter 20, verse 26, sums up what happened between the religious leaders and Jesus with this. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. So this is the end of these waves of trick questions that Jesus was receiving from them. And so after these trick questions stop and they actually commend Jesus for a great answer about the resurrection, Jesus kind of turns it around a little bit and he has a question for them. And so this is where we find ourselves this evening in verse 41. Jesus' question back to them. But he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? Now, who is they in verse 41? In order to find out who they is, we have to look back to verse 39. They are the teachers of the law. They are the scribes referred to in verse 39. So how can the scribes say that the Christ is David's son? Now, we as Christians know through the lineage of David, there will be a Messiah. Right, that the Messiah will be out of the house of David. And we can retract that by looking in uh, Luke chapter 1, where it's mentioned three times that the son of David is through this lineage of David and to be the Messiah. Now the question that Jesus had for the scribes wasn't whether or not the Christ was actually David's son, because all of them actually knew that. They knew what the prophets said. They knew that the Messiah would come through the Davidic line. What Jesus essentially asked them was, how do you know? How do you know that the Christ is David's son? Not that it's just kind of like because, you know, because the Scriptures say so, and that's it, and I just believe that. But how do you know that? Because if he is indeed David's son, then explain to me Psalm chapter 110, verse 1. Because that's what verses 42 and 43 are. This, this is Psalm 110, verse 1. For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So what was Jesus asking? He was asking them a theological question. And it wasn't to get them back. It wasn't to say, well, you asked me all these trick questions, now I have a trick question for you. He's asking them a theological question because He's Messiah. He is the Christ. And He's helping them to think through, do you see I'm the Christ? Do you realize that the guy that you're getting mad at and you're throwing trick questions at, that that it's me? I'm through that Davidic line. And, And so think about this, guys. Think through this. Because everyone else seems to understand this, right? Everyone else seems to understand that Jesus is indeed the son of David. You look back to Luke chapter 18, the blind man in Jericho, what did he say to Jesus? Verse 38, chapter 18. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. That even a blind guy recognized that he was the son of David. So Jesus' question to them was, why is the Christ referred to as the son of man? And here's verse 44. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? Think about this, guys. Don't just take it just 
the way it is. Think through this. Give me an answer. How is the Christ, the Son of David, if David calls Him Lord, how is He also His Son? So give me an answer, guys. Because they believed that the Christ was indeed the Son of David, but they didn't really know why they believed that. How can someone just believe? And they don't know why they believe. Doesn't that make that a thoughtless religion? Doesn't that make that a mindless religion? And so how many Christians, even in our church, fall into this? I just believe. And they don't think through. They don't think through the philosophy behind. They don't think through the theology behind why they believe. And they just say things like, oh, I just believe it. You just got to believe it. But they don't know why. Yet Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So do you know why you believe what you believe? Or is it just some thoughtless, mindless religion that you're a part of? See, we are to provide answers to people the the hope that we find in ourselves. And we find that the scribes don't have an answer to Jesus' question. And you notice what Jesus did after that. He didn't answer it for them. He didn't give them an answer. How could the scribes not know this? They are the teachers of the law. How can they not know this question? It's because they didn't hear the Scriptures. They heard it bounce off their eardrum, but they didn't internalize it. They didn't perceive it. Jesus said in Luke chapter 8, verse 18, Take care then how you hear. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. How many of us kind of just take the Bible in as data? But it doesn't change us. We just take it in as facts. We take it in as information accumulation and we we see the Bible and we read it and we hear it because we're sitting out here and we're listening to it and we log it in and we're collecting all these facts into our brain. But that's very different from reaching a point of perception and reaching a point of understanding so that Jesus changes us from within. That it's not just accumulation of information. Is it transformative to your life? This is the Word of God. How many times have you been too stubborn or thick-headed to receive from Jesus His Word? Because you're focusing on other things. Yet the truths of the Bible are in His Word. But yet sometimes we're just being something else. We're being too critical of the messenger or how things are presented or said rather than taking heed to the content of the message itself. And we're focusing on these other things. Because blindness doesn't just pertain to those without eyesight. Blindness also pertains to those who just won't open their eyes. You just won't see it. So people in Jesus' time didn't see and they didn't hear what Jesus said because they chose to close their eyes. They chose to plug their ears. And it happens today. right? The Bible is preached here Every week, the Gospel is shared here almost every week. We are almost doing that every week. Yet how many people come in with their eyes closed and their ears plugged? Because I think there are people that just come in here and they come week after week, but they don't go out any different. They go out the same. And yet the message of the Bible is not 
meant to be that way. It's meant to be perceived and heard and understood because otherwise your heart just gets continually calloused and hardened and your mind just gets closed off to the things that are going to change and transform you. People in Jesus' time didn't see and hear what Jesus said because they closed their minds to Jesus. They didn't want to hear what He had to say. So what's the answer to Jesus' question in verse 44? David thus calls Him Lord, so how is He His Son? How is the Son of David also David's Lord? Have you thought about this yourself? Because Jesus doesn't give us the answer. Just like He didn't give us the scribes. We're going to have to think about this more fully. How is this so? Because Jesus is both God and man. He's both God and man. He is God, the Son of God, and He is man, the Son of David. He is both. He's the Son of Man when He was born to the Virgin Mary in Bethlehem. Jesus, God, became man. God incarnate. Right, So Jesus confronted them with a truth and had them think. Like, think about this. All the prophets of old have been talking about this. Think about this. Yet you're rejecting Me. And so they rejected that God who came in the flesh in Jesus would save people from their sins. And they rejected Jesus without thinking about whether Jesus was really the Christ because they were too caught up in their own religion. Now, how many of us treat Christianity this way? We're more caught up in the religion where our faith in Jesus has become more a mindless, thoughtless religion. And I hope you don't come to church because it's just your tradition, it's just your habit, or that you have to because your spouse makes you. I'm really glad you're here. I hope that it's deeper than that, though. Right? I hope that you feel valued here and cared for and accepted here, but I hope that it's more than just emotions and feelings and habit and tradition because I hope being here encourages you to think. To think through what Christianity is. To think through being a thoughtful and mindful Christian about your faith. And I hope that your faith is not defined by church attendance. You're a Christian because you go to church? No. That you study your Bible? That makes you a Christian? No. Studying your Bible is important though. It's essential. You don't have to raise your hands, but how many of you have not read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, yet you've been a Christian for more than a year? I mean, that's kind of telling as to how your faith is with God. And, and, and if you need help with that, I'm more than happy to help you with that. I can give you our intern curriculum because they do it every year. They, they read through and study and outline through the Bible. I can give you the curriculum that I'm doing with new believers that come to Jesus because my goal for them is to go through the Bible in one year. There's a ton of online resources. See, the, the, the thing is, is that we're to be students of the Bible. We are to know what the Bible says. And I really want you to know that because I'm human. And just because it's coming out of my mouth does not mean that I'm infallible. If you are to show me something in a biblical sense, in a biblical context, and say like, you know, um, Albert, you're off because the Bible actually says this. I would thank you if I was in agreement with your interpretation, right? If it was accurate, I would agree with you. 
And I need you to do that for me. And, and so don't just take everything I say as gospel truth. The gospel is the gospel truth, not what is coming out of my mouth. But we, we need to dig for answers, right? We need to dig for answers for the questions that we have. And so studying, it takes discipline, it takes time, it takes effort, it takes dedication. And it's just like anything else that is worthy of investment, because following Jesus is not a game and it's not a hobby. It's not something that you just, eh, just kind of dabbling. I'm just trying it out. Just trying it out. See, that, that's religion. You try religion out, right? You try those things. Following Jesus, having an intimate relationship with the Almighty God, that's what it is. It's not playing religion. This is a serious call to commune with God. And so Jesus confronted the religious leaders about their religion to stop playing religion and to look at their relationship with God. Now, how do you develop a relationship, an intimate relationship with your spouse or your children or your girlfriend, boyfriend or or your close friends? You get to know them on another level, right? On an intimate level. So you, you communicate differently. Your, your intimacy levels are different because the way you invest into those really important relationships is different. It takes discipline. It takes time. It takes effort. It takes dedication. Right? And without the investment, it falters. It, it's no good. Right? So some of you guys who are pursuing girlfriends, it takes discipline, doesn't it? You, you don't just kind of have it happen. You, you guys have to put some effort into it. You got to dedicate some time. You got to develop relationships. You know, you got you to put some oomph behind that thing. It's not just going to happen. Right? So, how do we connect with God? Well, through prayer and through study of His Word, through fellowship with one another, through worship, through meditating on the things of God, like His character. We don't approach any good relationships just mindlessly and thoughtlessly. Do we? Right? The, the meaningful ones we actually invest into. And when we have questions within the relationships that we care about, we seek answers to those questions. And, and so we delight in making the relationship better. We delight in making the marriage better or the parent-child relationship better. We delight in those things. And this was how the people were with Jesus in Mark chapter 12, verse 37. And the great throng heard Him gladly. They were glad to hear Jesus, but it didn't just stop at that. People were changed. Their minds transformed. How many people are glad to hear a Bible study or a teaching about the Bible, but there's no change with that? It's just kind of entertainment or it's just more fact accumulation, but it's not a transformation that's happening with them. It's not changing them. And it's just like Herod. Because you remember Herod in Mark chapter 6, verse 20? Mark recorded for us that Herod heard John the Baptist. And he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. And John confronted Herod about his adulterous affair with Herodias. Herodias was his brother Philip's wife. And so John confronted him on it and said, like, hey, that's, that is not right. That is not right to have an adulterous affair with your sister-in-law. And so Herod liked John so much that he protected John from Herodias because Herodias actually wanted him dead. She didn't like him. She didn't like him calling him out and calling her out. But even though he was glad to hear from John, it didn't change him. It didn't change him at all. In fact, Herodias had her daughter dance for Herod, 
And he liked it because I guess she was hot or something. Like she, he really liked it. And he was like, anything you want, I'll give it to you, anything. And so he's like, I want John's head on a platter. And so he promised, and so that's what happened. And he was gladly hearing this guy. He loved hearing this guy, yet he killed him. Please don't do that to me. Just If you're glad, just be glad. So are you just gladly hearing the Bible, or are you really learning the Bible to where it changes, it transforms you? Are you just listening to it and accumulating knowledge and accumulating facts, or is it changing you? Is the Holy Spirit convicting you to change, to be more righteous, to be more holy? Or are these just stories? Is this just literature? Or is this the living Word of God that is dynamic in your life? See, the prophet Ezekiel wrote in Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 31 through 32. And they come to you as people come, and they sit before you as my people, and they hear what you say but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths they act. Their heart is set on their gain. And behold, you are to them like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument, for they hear what you say, but they will not do it. How many are like this? You come to church You hear what the Bible teaches. You even read the Bible and you're just reading the Bible, but you don't do anything about it. It's just a book. And isn't it disappointing when people seem to listen to you and they seem to understand you, but the the discussions that you guys have had and you've agreed upon, they don't act upon it. Just empty promises, no actions. They just kind of going along and empty yeses. Isn't it sad to see growth stop? Isn't that a sad thing? Because in most times, growth is good, right? Your, your children, if you have children, or if you have nieces or nephews or uncles, or, oh, not uncles, uncles stop growing, cousins, you know, all the younger kids, if they stop growing, that's a sad thing, isn't it? Like a, a two-year-old forever remaining a two-year-old? You know, it's a sad thing. And so isn't it sad to see growth stop? Growth, we want to see growth. We want to see children mature. We want to see spouses grow more in love with us. We want to grow personally, whether that's spiritually or professionally. And so how sad it is if we don't know any more of the Bible than we did a week ago. How sad it is if we don't know more theology than we did a month ago. How sad it is, is if you've had these questions in your mind for a year, these theological questions that you're not researching and exploring and studying, you're not digging for the answers, and it's been a year and you have the same questions. I mean, isn't that a sad thing? Jesus asked this question to the religious leaders. There's no answer from them. He doesn't provide one for them. Because it's already in the Bible. They just have to read it. And then he issued a warning to his disciples to be careful. Verses 45 through 47. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. 
This isn't a new warning, is it? Isn't this the same warning Jesus issued his disciples in Luke chapter 12, verse 1, where it reads, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. These religious leaders were hypocrites, you know, wearing long robes to differentiate themselves from just the common people and to have the common people out there just say like, wow, look at that scribe. Just look at that robe. It is just so pretty and long. He must be so smart. And they love to be seen and they love to be acknowledged in public places for, for who they were. And how different was Jesus? Jesus was meek and he was humble. And these guys were playing, you know, big shot and wanting the best seats and the places of honor. And Jesus never asked for those things. He was given those things, but he never asked for it. What did Jesus say in Luke chapter 14, verses 8 through 11? When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The best seats and the places of honor, they are not taken. Those are given. Right? The, the, the host gives you those seats. You don't take those seats. But these guys don't get it. They are there and they abused their position. They manipulated their positions of service into positions of entitlement, power, status, fame. And Jesus said they devoured widows' houses. It's not literal, right? It's not like they went and started eating the houses, right? This is, this is a metaphor. This is a metaphor of how, how the, the scribes exploited the weakest people of the time. The weakest people of the time were the widows. It might be different today, but at that time it, it was the widows. And Jesus was pointing out these guys are taking advantage of the weakest people in our society. And today it might be a different demographic, right? Today it might be something else. But the point of Jesus saying widows was to show that these guys were merciless in who they were targeting. They were targeting the most oppressed people. They were targeting the weakest people. Now, why would they take advantage of the weakest in society? Why would they do that? Because they weren't allowed to get paid to preach or to teach. So they did this. Now, my family and I thank you for paying uh, me to preach and teach. I Thank you for that. And hopefully that continues. But scribes back then were not paid to teach. They were not paid to preach. But they could receive gifts. They could receive gifts. So what they did was they would encourage people to give them gifts. And they would tell them, you know, this gift that you're giving me, this is blessed by God. You will be blessed in the eyes of God. This is a very commendable action. And they would use that to manipulate people and widows. They'd be like, you know what? Uh, I know you have a little, but you know, if you give me these gifts, you know, you, God will bless you and you know, things will be good for you. And Jesus warned his disciples that this manipulation from those religious leaders, that is going to receive a greater condemnation. That manipulation of the weak is going to receive a great condemnation. And this is a warning to all followers of Jesus because how quickly things change for us 
even if we start out as sincere disciples of Jesus, but then we get derailed by something like money or pride or status or power or entitlement. And the attitude of the scribes could so easily be in each one of us. And we need to take a look in the mirror regularly. The psalmist wrote in Psalm chapter 139, verses 23 through 24, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way of everlasting. After Jesus issued this caution to his disciple, he provided an example of who to look at, and, and he, so he pointed at a widow. How ironic is that? You know, he's just teaching a lesson about, you know, the widow is the weakest of the weak and these guys are devouring their houses. And then what does he do? He points at a widow to use as an example of a person of faith, a person that loves God. Now, in Mark's gospel account of this story, Mark chapter 12, verse 41, he gives us a a different detail and he writes this. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. So you remember that this is the time of the Passover and the offering box was not a singular box. What it actually was was 13 brass receptacles that were there to collect the different offerings people had. So you can imagine just the throngs of people coming to the Passover celebration and they're just dumping their coins into these brass receptacles. So can you imagine what it sounds like when they're putting these metal coins into brass receptacles? Sounds like Vegas. You're going to the room and your slots and you're just clink, 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 clink. That's, that's what it sounds like. Because there's no PayPal, there's no credit cards, there's no checks or anything like that. There's no paper bills. The currency used at the time were coins, metal coins. So lots of noise going on. Just a clink, 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 clink. You know, it's all this kind of stuff. And Mark wrote in Mark chapter 12, verse 41, that, that many rich people put in large sums. How did they know this? Because it sounded like jackpot, right? It sounded like... And so they, that's how they know this. They can hear this. And so they're hearing this. Clink, 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 clink. And people listening in to these different offerings could tell the difference between the coins because can't you and I tell the difference between someone dropping a dollar coin to a, a, a metal receptacle and what that sounds like compared to if we dropped a dime? There's a big difference, right? One would be tink and one would be... Thump, right? It just sounds different. And so it's the same with this. A gold aureus would sound different than a silver denarii, and that would sound different than a bronze sestery, and that would sound different than the least valuable coin of all, which is copper. So there was all these different metals, and they can, you can tell the difference between what that sound was. That was gold. That was copper. That was funny. Quack. You know, this is like nothing. And then we move into chapter 21. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box and He saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. Probably couldn't even hear it because all these other 13 receptacles, He probably had to actually see it. Right? And so you imagine the disciples observing all those who were coming with their offerings and were like, oh, check out that guy. He has his Rolex sundial on. He's coming. He's coming. Look at those big old bags. He's going to drop the... 
Wow, did you see that? That's awesome. That guy's loaded, right? And so they're looking at everybody and they just have, you know, their accessories and their clothes and they look all spiffy and stuff because this is the Passover. This is just going out there and people watching and just looking at the people like, man, check out that guy and check out this guy and check out that guy. And so they're just people watching. And so when they see the widow come by, they're not even looking at her. Like, she's not even carrying a bag. What is she going to put in the offering? Can't even hear it. Because it's like, she probably just did her thing and no one even notices. Because that's nothing in the eyes of people. But it's not like that with Jesus. Jesus saw her. What, What caught his eye was a poor widow who put in the least valuable of coins, two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. All of them? All other 12 receptacles? All other bags of gold that are going there? He said, truly I tell you. So in other words, pay attention to this, guys. Did you just see what I saw? Did you just see that widow? She put in more than all of them. And the disciples must have been thinking, Jesus has a math problem. Or he has a vision problem. Like He must have saw something wrong. Because all of us know that one gold aureus is worth the same amount as 1,600 copper coins. We all know that. And he's like, whoa, two copper coins. Like, what is that? Big deal, Jesus. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. She gave sacrificially, and it cost her. It was a costly offering. Whereas people who give out of their abundance, it isn't always sacrificial and it doesn't cost them much. Bill Gates donating $1 million is not a big deal. Right? Think about it. Think of how much money that guy has. Donating a $1 million to him is not sacrifice. It is not costing him anything. But someone who donates $100 when they're making $1,000 a month or less that is much more likely to be a sacrifice. That is much more likely to be costly, especially in the Bay Area. And in Jesus' warning, he used a widow as an example of whom the scribes took advantage of. And then appeared a real-life example, and Jesus is so real-time, he is pointing out every moment is a teaching moment for Jesus, and he sees a widow. He just taught about uh, scribes devouring their houses, and here's a widow, and he sees that they put two copper coins in there, and he's like, i got to point that out. Guys, pay attention. Look at this. She gave out of her poverty to God. She knows that God owns everything and that God needs nothing from us for His kingdom. He owns all that we have to offer Him. Without Him, we have nothing. Check her out. Now, all of us have an understanding of this kind of a concept because we're all either parents or we were kids. right? So, so as parents, uh, I, I have children and so my, my children will come up to me on Mother's Day and they will ask me, Dad, can I have some money to buy Mom a gift? And then vice versa. They will go to my wife and they'll say, Mommy, can I have money to buy Daddy a gift for Father's Day? And they'll do this because they'll, they need the money to go purchase that card or the flowers or the tie or whatever. But the thing is, the money comes from us. They didn't earn a dime. 
It's coming from us. We're buying our own gifts, right? And so this is kind of how it is with God. It's the same thing. Right? Like we're thinking like, oh, we're giving him something. He no. He gave it to you. He's the one that gave it to you in the first place, right? Your life, your critical thinking, your breath, your material wealth, all that you have was initially from him. It's not like you're giving him anything. He gave it to you first. And you're just kind of like, oh, can I use this money to give to you? Uh, nice tie or whatever, right? And it's just like that. So, so how can we make an issue of giving back to God what he initially gave to us? You can't. Even if we were to give an amount that some people would deem would be a large gift, it is nothing in God's economy. Right? Like, like if my kid came and asked me like, for a more extravagant gift for mom. See, like, it, it, it's not that big of a thing for me. It, it's still, I would love to do it because you know, I, I love my wife and I love my kids and this would be like kind of cool. So, but everything is God's anyway. And, and it's not about the amount because God is looking at the heart. He's looking at your attitude behind that gift giving. A million dollars to a multi-billionaire is not a big thing. Right? Think of it. It's not a big thing. It's like me giving 10 bucks. It's just, it's not sacrificial compared to someone who gives a thousand when they make ten thousand a year. That's costly. Especially here. That's sacrificial. Now, it's not that I'd complain if someone gave us a million bucks. I'd take it. You know, I'd, I wouldn't say, like, oh, this is not sacrificial. I'll give it. Just give it to me. I'll take it. We'd put it to good use. But are we giving sacrificially? Is everyone here giving sacrificially? Because I, I think some are, but I know that some aren't. I know that for a fact. And you're like, how do you know? I look at the tithe records. I see your name attached to what you give. I'm kidding. I don't do that. I, don't. <laughs> I, don't. I really don't do that. I don't, I don't, you guys are, really? <laughs> I don't do that. And there's a reason why I don't do that. It's because I know me. And if you give a lot here, I would probably give you preferential treatment. I would probably give you my phone number. And whenever you called to go out to lunch, yeah, let's go. Yeah, let's go. We'll go out to lunch. And if I, and if I knew, oh, this guy only gave like 100 bucks to the church all year long. And you called me, I'd be like, oh, yeah, let me refer you to somebody. Oh, this guy. And I, w- I would delete you from my contacts, right? So I, I, I don't want to do that stuff. I want to treat the guy that gives 100 bucks, even though I think you're totally off base, the same as someone who gives 10,000 bucks. I want to treat you the same because I am a, a pastor whose calling is to shepherd the flock and I want to care for you guys just the same. It's not a matter of how much you give because I can be bought and I know that, so I don't look at it. I do know how much is given. I don't know whose name's attached to that giving, but I have code words for you. The one who gives a lot is called blessed, and the one that gives a little is cursed. No, I'm kidding. That, I, don't, I don't. It's just numbers, right? They're just numbers to me. And so I have our bookkeeper break it up for me. People that give less than 1,000, and then between 1,000 and 2,500, 25 to 5, 5 to 75. Uh, 75 to 10 and over 10. I just have these buckets in my head that I've asked her to give me those numbers. 
Do you know where our church falls for the majority of the givers at our church? 80 to 90%, more towards the 90%. Do you know where the giving falls? Between 1,000 and 2,500. That is the vast majority of what people give at our church. The average tither and offerer, I don't know what you call them, averages 2,000 a year. If we're just using 10% as a tithe number, what does that equate to that you make in a year? 20000 For some of you, I totally understand because you're a student or you work for a nonprofit or you're a parachurch organization or you're you know, something that is not paying you more. But if you live in the Bay Area and you work here, you make more than that. Otherwise, you couldn't live here. Right? So my question is, are you giving sacrificially to the church? And and I know there are people who give sacrificially. I know there are. But based on the numbers, I know that there are those who don't. And if you are one of those who is giving sacrificially, then you have nothing going on in your head. You're good, right? You're just like, yeah, yeah, that's right. This is only really affecting those that aren't doing it. Right? And if you're not, it's not because I'm coming down hard on you. It's just kind of this is the passage that we're talking about. This is the widow and her sacrificial gift of two copper coins, which was everything. What do you think would happen if our church got serious about giving sacrificially? I'm kind of wondering what God would do if people within the church did that. Not simply looking at amounts that we feel are good enough. You know, like, oh, uh, if I give a thousand bucks a year, then, you know, that's good enough. Yet you make like a hundred thousand. That's nothing. That's nothing. But we as a church, we aim to give 10% away. That's our aim. And so that's what we try to do. That's what we budget. We try to budget 10%. We, we are giving away to people, for whether it's benevolence or outreach or missions or whatever it is, that we are giving that away. We could give away so much more, though, if people would sacrificially give within the church. You see, $10,000 isn't sacrificial to a millionaire. But it may be to someone who's making 100000 What is the proportion given compared to what God has blessed you with? Our giving is appraised by our heart and our attitude behind the gift. It is measured by the sacrifice, the proportion of what we have. It's not just simply a number. And so people sometimes think like, I don't want to give to the church because I don't know what you guys do and you know, I don't trust it or whatever. They have all these different excuses. Do you remember that these guys were so corrupt that Jesus went in there storming into the temple and said, you guys have made this a den of thieves? Did the widow go in there saying, like, I don't trust you guys and therefore you don't get my copper coins? She gave. She just gave. So it's not really up to us to kind of nitpick in those types. If that is where you stand, you need to discuss why you're still here. Because if you have a problem with that, there's obvious trust issues. Right? And so we got to clear that up. We got to clear that up. It has nothing to do with giving. You got more serious issues that you got to deal with that you continue to fellowship here and worship here and sit under the teaching here and you're not giving. Then there's something else. 
Right there's a deeper issue. The widow gave out of her poverty. She gave sacrificially. She gave a percentage, a proportion that was high. It was very costly. She gave humbly. And Jesus took notice of that. He took notice of that. Now is Jesus telling all of us to give everything we have? Maybe for some of you. I don't know. Maybe God is telling you that. But I don't think that's the principle uh, of what he is saying here. I think the principle here is to give humbly, sacrificially, and it has to cost you. And it's not for show. It's not for recognition or acknowledgement or an amount that is comfortable for us to give. Our giving, it has to cost us something. It has to cost us. It has to make us feel a little uncomfortable. We don't give out of our abundance. And it's not a specific number. It's more about sacrifice. It's more about proportion. And this is in regards to financial resource. But let's think more broadly. Let's think about other resources that we have, like our life. What are we giving to God? Or our time? Or our effort? What are we giving to Him? How much are we giving of ourselves to serve the kingdom of God? In our jobs, in our studies, in our businesses, what are we giving? Because everything He's given us, that was from Him. So what are we giving back? Verse 5, And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, He said, Do you guys catch this? Because sometimes people break these passages up and they break up the the widow's mites to this passage and stuff like this. Which is why I think it's really important just to read it all the way through. Because if you don't, you miss this. Because if you read this all the way through, through that passage, do you catch the disciples being so dense here? Because their minds turn right back to the material. Jesus just told them at the end of chapter 20 not to take advantage of those easily exploitable people like widows. Don't be like those scribes eating the widows out of their home. And then he pointed to a widow as an example of someone who gave to God sacrificially. Just a real-time example that happened to him right there. And then they're just like getting all these good nuggets of wisdom from God. And then they're in the temple like, ooh, pretty. Wow, cool temple. And all those lessons, like what happened to that? Don't you remember like, what he was talking about, about exploiting the poor and giving sacrificially and all this? And these guys are just like, oh, temple. And their minds just shift from the things of God. Jesus is about teaching moments, isn't he? And so what does he do? He saw the widow give two mites and she's like, hey guys, pay attention. He sees these guys admiring the temple and he's like, guys, huddle up. I've got something to talk to you about. And so they're in the temple. And for us to kind of be in the mind frame of where these guys are, because it's really difficult for us to picture what the temple meant to them and and what what it looked like and all these kind of things and, and how grand it was and how amazing it was and all this stuff. But if you could think of something that you've visited and it just took your breath away, it just amazed you, that's what the temple was like for them. These are rural folks. These are fishermen. These are guys that live in the country, in the sticks. And they are ascending into Jerusalem and they notice this grand structure with gold and just valuable metals and stones and all this kind of beautiful stuff. Can you imagine what it was like for them? 
And for me personally, it's, it's like when I saw the Great Wall of China. Right, I, I see the Great Wall of China for the first time. I'm just, this is a crazy thing. As far as my eyes can see, this wall meandering through the mountains and all this kind of, through the valleys and up to the peaks and just miles upon miles upon miles. And it just blew my breath. I could not believe, I was, I was amazed. How can people build that thing? And so this is the disciples. They're just like, whoa, this is amazing. This thing's crazy. Now, keep in mind that the temple was more than just a physical structure to these guys. To the Jews, for that matter. It's more than just a physical building. Now, we don't have time to go into all the details about the temple, but I just want to share a little bit about it. This temple that they were in is the second temple built by Herod the Great. The first one was destroyed. The first one was built by Solomon. This second one was built by Herod the Great. The same guy that built the port in Caesarea. Same guy. The same guy that built many of the great structures within Israel. Right? Like Masada. Like all these great, great structures. He was the one who rebuilt the temple. This massive structure sitting on top of Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. Today, where the Temple Mount sits. Now you imagine the people as they're going up to Jerusalem as pilgrims, and this is an agrarian society, as you recall, and most of these folks have no idea that something like this exists, and they're walking up, and they're just like, whoa. Because sheets of gold, they're just shining back on them as the sun is bouncing off of the thing, and they're just like amazement, and they don't have their Ray-Bans on yet and stuff like that, and they put them on, they're just like, whoa, I wish polarized lenses would come in, and, so, and all this kind of stuff, and they're walking there, and so their thought is that is a physical specimen like no other. But the other thing about it is that has spiritual and religious significance too because that's where God dwells. That's where His Shekinah glory is. That's where the Ark of the Covenant is. That's where the Holy of Holies is where the veil is separating us between God and only the high priest can enter in. That is where God's physical presence is. And so that is a really, really important building to them. Not just because it was a magnificent structure, but that's where God resides. And so if you would ask a Jew at the time, you know, where, where can I meet God? They'd point you to Jerusalem, to the temple. But if you enter into the Holy of Holies, you will die. But that's where He is. And so what they would do to the high priest is they would tie a bell around his ankle and a rope because if he was not right with God, he would die and they would have to pull him out. But only he was allowed to pass through the veil and go in. Verse 6, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And so these guys are thinking, Jesus, you're crazy. Look at this thing. What are you talking about? Stone will be thrown down. Nothing is knocking this thing over. This thing is staying. To give you a better context of why the disciples were just like so bewildered, some of the stones that were used for the construction of the temple were over 100 tons. This is before modern technology of cranes and bulldozers and all that. I don't know how they did that. Over 100 tons? Manual labor? How do you do that? And the largest stone, measuring 45 by 11 by 17 feet, weighing over 567 tons, they are estimating between 567 to 628 tons. One stone. 
the largest stone. So you can imagine the shock the disciples had when Jesus said, like, these stones are coming down. They're like, you're crazy. Nothing's moving that thing. When that thing's set, that's it. So was each stone thrown down from the temple? We just came back from Israel. And I can tell you, no. That there's still some stones that are there. There are a few. Most of them are thrown down because Titus invaded Jerusalem. He destroyed the temple. He threw it down. So, oh, Jesus, is that's not true then. What, what he's saying, the Bible's not accurate. It's, it's not literal. It's just like the scribes eating widows' houses, right? It's not, it's not, it's not like that, right? It's, he was using a hyperbole that most of these stones that you see in this grand temple, they are coming down. And the main point Jesus was getting across is that you know this magnificent structure, this temple, it's coming down. This building's coming down. Now, why were most of the stones removed? Why, why were they pulled down? Because, yeah, Jerusalem was destroyed. Like, why, why wouldn't they just keep the structure up and use it for something else? Why did they pull everything down, as Jesus said? Because they're greedy. And they like gold. And so as they're destroying the city, the heat from the fires and all that stuff, they would melt those sheets of gold and they would melt down the building and into the stones and along the stone. And so the Romans were like, hey, gold! And it's inside there. So we, we got to get in and take all these things and we got to get in between the stones and make sure there's no gold. And so they're just like toppling stones one over another. And Jesus was prophesying about that happening. And that's what they did. They pushed them all over looking for gold. And you remember that the temple is not just a significant place for them physically. It is also a spiritually, religiously significant place. So what was Jesus saying when He told His disciples, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. What was He saying? It's not just the physical structure coming down. It's more than that. The religious structure is coming down too. That religious structure is coming down. So the, the temple represented both of those structures. In Jesus' physical and spiritual arrival, in His prophecy of the temple coming down, was the destruction of the physical temple and the destruction of this old religious system. He was tearing it down. It is no longer going to stand. What was religiously done in the temple that is no longer necessary today? All of those rituals and those ceremonies and those sacrifices that used to be done in the temple, they are no longer required because Jesus came. Because up until Jesus, everyone knew what was needed to get right with God and relate with God. They knew what sacrifices they needed to bring to the temple. They knew what they had to do. And it was a physical place to meet God. And what Jesus declared was that things are going to change. Things are going to change. Not only will that physical structure no longer exist, neither will the religious structure on how you know God. That is no longer going to exist. I am changing things. Jesus said in Luke chapter 18, verses 31 through 33, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day he will rise. And then verse 34, but they understood none of these things. They don't get what Jesus was saying about his death and resurrection. They don't get chapter 21, verse 6 until after the resurrection. 
And even though this plan of redemption was in place for all of eternity, this is God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, they've already planned this whole thing out. It didn't play out until Jesus' arrival. And so even though there are many prophecies available about the Messiah and what He would do, they still didn't get it. Let's take a look at just a couple of them. Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31 through 33. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Jeremiah prophesied about when religion would stop focusing on the externals. It would be on their heart. It would be within. All those ceremonies and rituals and sacrifices and the external focal point of a temple, that will all turn inward. That will turn towards the heart what was happening in the spirit of that person. And where the focal point used to be on this external of the temple will now be in our heart, in our relationship with Jesus Christ, the one who is greater than the temple. It was going to focus inward. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. Then there were three to four hundred years of just silence before the start of the New Testament. Now who do we find as the first prophet in the New Testament? The messenger, John the Baptist, right? The messenger that was spoken about in Malachi. Now, John the Baptist, the forerunner, the preparer of the way of the Lord, who comes to his temple suddenly, Jesus. And where do we find Jesus? He's in his temple. He's in his father's house. And the house is now going to come down because the focal point is no longer this temple. It is God himself. It is Jesus. And they reject him. They want to keep this, but they don't want Jesus. They rather have the temple. God knew this. The Trinity knew this. They knew that people were going to think like this. So what has to happen? This thing has to come down. The temple has to come down. And for them, you know, inconceivable. Like, no. Because the Ark of the Covenant's in there. The Holy of Holies is there. The, the veil and, and God being in there, is, is, it's all there. And much of what they knew to be holy was there. But the one who is greater than the temple arrived. Jesus arrived. Jesus made it possible for that veil that separated the Holy of Holies from everyone else. He allowed that veil to be torn so that you and I can have a relationship with God. Because He Himself was that veil that was torn. And so He ushers us in a relationship with God the Father, Holy God. And He came to us. God came to His people. Jesus incarnate came from heaven and came to us. And we no longer have to go to the temple to see God and to sacrifice because He Himself came to be the sacrifice and said, you don't have to do that anymore. We're done. I'm the ultimate sacrifice. You don't have to come to Me. I'm coming to you. 
I'm coming down to you. And so he initiated a relationship with us. It's a totally different setup now. John chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. They didn't get it until the encounter with the resurrected Christ. They didn't get it. Who three days before died on the cross and was buried and he rose again. Right now, now what is this temple of his body? What is that? It's the church. Not the physical building. That's long gone. That's old news. It's the church. The body of Christ. The church. And He came to save everyone who would repent. He came to save sinners. Now don't be guilty of the same thing as those guys back in that day thinking that God is in the church in terms of the physical structure. Because if none of us were here, God is not here. He's not in the building. It is spiritual. It is a spiritual relationship. It's not about the ceremonies and the rituals and the sacrifices and the systems that we have in place within the church. The real temple is Jesus' body, the spiritual church, not the physical building. Right? Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, that is, the church. Do you guys remember this from your kid? Like, you know, here's the church, and here's the steeple, open the doors, here's all the people. It's us, right? We're the church. We are the church. Not this physical building. And we have access to God at any time. The Holy Spirit is within us. The temple is not necessary anymore. We go directly to God now. John wrote in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9-10, through After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. No more temple gathering where we bring lambs for sacrifices, but a gathering to the Lamb of God Himself, Jesus. Now, how many of us are stuck in religion? And we're stuck with church as a building. And we're stuck in religious systems. And you're so stuck in the physical that venturing into the spiritual is very challenging. And I get it. I get people need like tangible things and they want to exercise all the senses and all that stuff because that's how the world works and that's how the enemies of God work and they desire us to remain in the physical realm. They do not want us to go into the spiritual realm. But you won't find God in the physical church building without people. You're not going to come in here and just find God. You'll find Him in His church where there are His people. And if you're trying to meet God in the physical realm, you're going to have a really difficult time finding Him there. Because the physical world is old news. That temple is old news. That's an old covenant. You want to meet Him, you need to open up your spirit to Him and have Him meet you there. In faith, you receive Him and He'll transform your life. 
Verse 7, And they asked Him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And we have the same questions now, don't we? We have these same exact questions. Jesus will go on and address this in the rest of chapter 21, but let's just suffice it to say with verse 8 here, when He says, See that you are not led astray. That's why you got to study the Word for yourself. You just can't take what I'm giving you. You got to study it. You have to know you cannot be led astray. And so we'll take a look at that in more depth and unpack that next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for your instruction. You're brilliant. Lord, may we not take advantage of your grace, take advantage of your mercy. May we leave here changed not just accumulating more facts and more information and just reading the Bible as literature, but that it is a living Word of God and that it can transform our lives. So God, I ask that You would make us to be like the widow. Prevent us to be like the scribes. Help us to focus on a relationship with You. In Jesus' name, Amen.